theyeshiva.net. and welcome to all. Before I begin the class tonight, I would like to invite each and every one of you to join us next Sunday evening, January 24th, 2010, the night of the 10th of Shvat 5770 at 8 o'clock p.m. for a live evening, a global evening of music and inspiration commemorating 60 years of the leadership of the Lubavitcher Rebbe at a live event which will take place at Chabad in Boca Raton in Florida with a live webcast at theyeshiva.net that's next Sunday, January 24th, 8 o'clock p.m. This evening's class is dedicated in honor of our new son, Avraham Moshe ben Esther Avigail Jacobson, in honor of his birth on the 20th of Tevis, 5,770. This evening's class is also dedicated by our dear friends, David and Ida Schattenstein, in the loving memory of the Kedoshim of Mumbai, including Rabbi Gavriel Noyach and Rifki Holtzberg, in the loving memory of Altashula Swerdlov, in the loving memory of Avram David Liberov, Pashaleya Azulei, Tehei Nishmasam Tsuruda B'Tsurayr HaChayim. They tell the anecdote about a farmer from Texas, who came to visit his fifth cousin, also a farmer in Israel. And the Israeli farmer wants to impress his cousin from Texas. He takes him around his beautiful farm in the Holy Land, shows him the crop, shows him the vegetables, shows him the trees, the fruits, shows him the stables, the animals, the cows, the chickens, and so on and so forth. And they're discussing their respective farms. And the man of Texas turns to the farmer of Israel and he says, ha, I see you don't understand what a farm is. Let me tell you about my farm back in Texas. When I get into my tractor in the morning to drive through my farm, it takes me three days to get from one side of the farm to the other side of the farm. And the Israeli farmer looks at his remote cousin. He gives a deep sigh. Ah! 
And he says, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I also used to have such a tractor. This anecdote demonstrating how two people can communicate to each other, but yet their language is completely different. They don't even understand the language of each other. Is the suitable introduction for the theme we want to discuss this evening. A tale of two children living in two tomorrows. The conclusion of the weekly portion of Bo finds the Israelites set free from a long and horrific Egyptian bondage and slavery. Their leader, unparalleled leader and master, Moshe Rabbeinu Moses, who set them free, speaks to them in the aftermath of the Exodus. And one of the most important themes he speaks to them again and again is about education, about sharing the story with their children and with the generations that will follow them. One interesting verse we will focus on this evening. Please open your source sheet, your curriculum. Right below the video you have a PDF document with all of the sources. Source number one. We'll also bring it up on the screen. Source number one, Parshas Boy, chapter 13, verse number 14. Yud Gimel Yudalit. Moses talks to the Jews and he says, V'hoya ki yishalcha bincha machar leimer mazois, v'yamarte lav b'choizek yod. When your child will ask you tomorrow, what is this? You will tell him with a strong hand, God has taken us out of the house of slavery. After Moses tells the Jews that when you will come, to the Holy Land, you will come to the land of the Canaanites. And he gives them a series of commandments, namely the idea that the oldest child, the firstborn male, must be redeemed from the Kohen, as well as the firstborn cow, the firstborn sheep. Your child will ask you tomorrow, what is this? What are these mitzvahs all about? And you will respond to him that God has taken us out of Egypt. Now, you know the greatest biblical commentator is Rashi. Rashi is the acronym for Rabbeinu Shlomo Yitzchaki. He lived in the 11th and 12th century in Troy in France. For a while he was also in Worms in Germany, Vermeisen in Germany, but most of his life he lived in Troy in the country of France. And he wrote the most basic fundamental commentary on the Bible, on the Tanakh, as well as on the Talmud, he's known as Rashi, Rabbeinu Shlomo was his name, Shlomo and his father's name, Yitzchak, thus Rashi, Rabbeinu Shlomo, Yitzchak. Rashi gives us an interpretation here. What seems to bother him is a very obvious question. What does the Torah mean when it says, when your child will ask you tomorrow? Why tomorrow? Why will this question happen only tomorrow in 24 hours? Why tomorrow? Why Machar? Take a look in Rashi. Second paragraph of source number one. Please bring it up. Rashi ki yesholcha bincha machar. Yesh machar shu achshav. 
There is a machar, there is a tomorrow which is part of the today, which means now. And there is a tomorrow which means at a later time. There's two machars, Rashi tells us. Sometimes the Torah says machar tomorrow and it means now. It will happen tomorrow. It will happen tomorrow, Tuesday, in 24 hours. But sometimes when we use the word machar tomorrow, it doesn't mean literally tomorrow in 24 hours. It means tomorrow in terms of in a distant future, at a later time. Tomorrow may mean in a week, in a month, in a year, in ten years, in a hundred years, in a thousand years. Tomorrow in the distant future at a later time. That is also included in the word machar tomorrow. And Rashi continues, like this machar here. When your child will ask you tomorrow, doesn't mean in 24 hours. Rather it means in the distance, in the distant future. At a later point in history, a child may ask you, Mazois, what is this? What are all these rituals and commandments and mitzvos and laws? And you will talk to him, you will explain to him the story of the exodus of Egypt. And Rashi continues, Ukagoin. There's another example for this type of machar, which means not tomorrow, as in the next day, in the following day, but tomorrow at a later time. And that is a verse in Yehoshua and Joshua, Machar Yoimru Bnechem Libaneinu, the Bnei God of Reuven. In the story of the children of God and Reuven, two tribes of Israel, tomorrow your children might tell our children. There too, tomorrow does not mean tomorrow as in the subsequent following day, but tomorrow in the distant future. That story we will discuss later in the class. This is what Rashi tells us. Let's ask a simple question in this Rashi. Why was it necessary for Rashi to give us the introduction, Yesh Machar Achshav? There is a tomorrow which is now. That is not relevant here. It's obvious that when it says tomorrow, Machar, it could mean literally tomorrow, as in the next day, the following day. In fact, in the Torah itself, in the portion of Aera, Moses tells Pharaoh, he uses the word Machar a few times, tomorrow this plague will happen, tomorrow I will pray, tomorrow it will stop. There the Machar means literally tomorrow. It's obvious, it's simple. It's a no-brainer that Machar means Achshav. There's a Machar which means tomorrow as within the next 24 hours, or in 24 hours or so. That is not the novelty of Rashi here. What Rashi is trying to explain to us is a new insight that sometimes when the Torah uses the word tomorrow, when it employs the term machar, it means not literally tomorrow, but tomorrow as a distant future. That is the novelty of Rashi. So why does Rashi begin his commentary with the seemingly superfluous and unnecessary statement, there is a machar which means today. Every word in Rashi, you must realize, is meticulous, is precise. No excessive and superfluous words. Rashi's commentary is a masterpiece in the sense that every single word, sentence, is profoundly meticulous, impeccably. 
Why is this introduction necessary? Rashi should have began. Ki when your child asks you tomorrow, yesh Sometimes the Torah will use the term macher tomorrow, and it means not literally in 24 hours, but in a distant future. In fact, in fact, the same term is used by the Torah at a later point, and that's exactly what Rashi does. Open up source number two. In Deuteronomy, in the portion of Eschan, and the Torah says, Ki yishalcha bincha machar leimer ma'edez v'achukam ha'mishpatam ha'shetziv ha'shem alakeinu eschem. If your child asks you tomorrow, what are these laws which God has commanded you? Take a look in Rashi, source number two, the second paragraph, bring it up, Zakt Rashi, ki yishalcha bincha machar, yesh machar shuachazman. Sometimes the Torah uses the word machar, and what does it mean? It means the distant future. Rashi does not give us there the introduction, The Machar Shawakhshav is unnecessary. Rashi goes straight to the point, Why here in Bo does Rashi give us the seemingly unnecessary introduction? Another question. Rashi brings a proof from the book of Joshua, Yehoshua Chavbez, Joshua 22, where the Torah uses the word machar, and it means not the immediate, the immediate day following this day, but it means a later point in history, a later point in time. Why does Rashi have to wait <coughs> and bring us a proof from Joshua 22, when in this very same book of Yehoshua, in chapter 6, in chapter 4, I stand corrected. In chapter 4, there's already a macher, which means the distant future. Source number 3, Yehoshua chapter 4. Joshua commanded the Jews to take stones, 12 stones, and set them up by the Jordanian River after they crossed the river from the East Jordan to the West of the Jordan to enter into the Promised Land. Why? So he says, source number three, This shall be a sign among you. When your children might ask you tomorrow, what is the meaning of these stones? And you will explain to them that these stones represent the fact that you crossed the Jordanian River and the river split as you crossed the river to enter into the Holy Land. There too, machar, your children will ask you tomorrow. It doesn't mean tomorrow, Tuesday, or Wednesday, or Thursday, next day. It means at a later point. And this is in Joshua chapter 4. But Rashi does not bring this source. He waits for Joshua chapter 22, discussing a different story. Why? Why not bring an earlier source from Machar? Tonight I want to share with you one explanation for this. It's an explanation that was presented by the Lubavitcher Rebbe at a Shabbos afternoon gathering or Fabrengen in Yiddish on Shabbos Parshas Bo Yutzva Tavshin Lamed on the Shabbos of the portion of Bo, the 10th of Shvat, 1970. It was actually the 20th anniversary of the passing of his father-in-law, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe who passed away on the 10th of Shvat, 1950. And this was the 20th anniversary of his passing, the 10th of Shvat, 1970. 
The Rebbe gave then a lengthy explanation into this Rashi. But tonight I'm only calling one idea a more homiletical and symbolic explanation in this Rashi. Based on the Lubavitcher Rebbe's explanation on that Shabbos. The Torah here is addressing that phenomenal concept of when your child will ask you, Mazois, what is this? This is not the only time the Torah refers to your child asking questions. In this very portion of Bo, earlier, Moses tells the Jews, when your children will tell you, what is all this service that you're doing? Later in Bo, he says, You should tell the story to your children. Here again, Your child will ask you. In Veschanan, that I quoted before again, Your child will ask you. These four verses correspond to the famous four children in the Haggadah, based on the fact that there are four verses in the Chumash, where the Torah addresses the conversation between the parent and the child in terms of Passover. The Torah here is presenting a very powerful idea, namely, don't be scared of questions. Encourage questions. Celebrate questions. Embrace questions. Sometimes people think that religion must be threatened by questions. If your children or students ask too many questions, vey, run from questions. Rebuke them, chastise them for asking questions. How dare you ask questions? This is not a religion of questions. Comes the Torah immediately after the Exodus, after they become free men, before even they become a nation at Sinai. And Moses again and again and yet again emphasizes the fact that questions are not only not something you should be threatened of, but on the contrary, questions ought to be embraced, questions ought to be welcomed. Judaism is never scared or insecure of people, children and students and people asking questions. To give a simple example, when your books are legal, you don't mind if somebody scrutinizes your books. Or when your house is in a good condition, you don't care if an inspector comes and makes a thorough inspection to examine the foundations and other parts of the home you're secure because you know that you could look deeply into the house or deeply through the books and you will not find any worms, you will not find any destructive forces because you're confident. Judaism has the confidence to allow for any question in the world. Ask. We're not scared of questions. When there are answers, then there's no reason to be intimidated by questions. the Mishnah says, Turn over Torah, turn over Torah, search and search because it's all there. True. You don't have to wait till you understand everything in order to observe the Torah and the mitzvahs. In Judaism, the order is Nasa before Nishma. The Jews said first we'll do, and then we will listen and understand. But understanding and asking questions in order to be able to appreciate and understand is not only something you have to engage in Nebuch, you have no choice, it's something you should celebrate. Because if there's real confidence, if you understand that your product is real, it's authentic, then never be afraid, never be scared of questions. So the Torah says your child will ask. 
Don't run, don't chastise, engage the child. But there are two types of questions coming from two different types of children. And it's these two types of questions and two types of children that Rashi is alluding to in his commentary. Children, by definition, belong to Machar. They belong to the tomorrow. They represent our future. They are the voice, not of today, but of tomorrow. But there are two tomorrows, Rashi tells us. Yesh Machar Shu Achshav, Yesh Machar Shu There is a tomorrow which belongs to the today. There is a tomorrow which is disconnected from the today. There is a tomorrow which belongs to a distant future. You see, there are two types of children living in the tomorrow, two different tomorrows. There's a child who represents to the tomorrow, but his tomorrow is a continuum of the today. This is a child for whom? The values, the traditions, the lifestyle, the perspective, the Weltanschauung, the convictions and ideals of his or her father, grandfather, great-grandfather, are precious, are valuable. He cherishes them. He holds them sacred. He loves them. But he's a child. He wants to learn. He wants to explore. He's curious. So he asks questions. He asks questions. He wants to understand. He's curious. He wants to discover. He asks all types of questions. But then there is another child. There's a child who belongs to a tomorrow which is distant, alien, and foreign to the today. This is a child who lives not only in a tomorrow which seeks to continue and carry on the torch, the flame, the passion of yesterday. A child who sees himself or herself in a chain of millennia of continuing the story of writing the next chapter, of continuing the song and the melody, that's a machar shulachshav, it's a tomorrow which belongs to the today. But Rashi says there's a machar shulachshman. There's a tomorrow which belongs not to today. This represents a child or a new generation which identifies not, with em- which empathizes not, which appreciates not the perspectives, the values, the traditions, the rituals, the lifestyle, the faith, the memories of their ancestors. This is a child who lives in a new milieu, in a new world, not only geographically, not only technologically, not only as far as the timeline of history is concerned, but also existentially, thematically, conceptually. The paradigms of this child differ drastically from the paradigms of his father or grandfather or great-grandfather or great-grandmother. The very modalities of thought are different. It's not just this child or youngster may have a disagreement, may have a question. The very paradigm, the, the very paradigms of thought, the very foundations of how to look at the world, of how to look at life, of how to look at virtually every reality in life, 
is of a different perspective. It's a different modality. It's a mocher shula achers man. It's a tomorrow which is separated from the today by a very profound gulf. These, these questions coming from this child are very different type of questions. It's not just the questions of a child who identifies, empathizes, loves, and just wants to learn, wants to understand. The questions of this child are completely different because his very paradigms are different. His very foundations are different. You know, they tell the anecdote about a Jew who walks into a store and he was a religious observant Jew and it's a meat store and the man standing behind the counter serves him the meat and then he says, tell me, is the food kosher? Is the food in the store kosher? I, I keep kosher. So the man gets a little bit insulted and he says, look up to the wall. You see that man with the long white beard hanging on the wall? He was my great-grandfather. And he was a great rabbi in this and this city in Poland. How dare you doubt and ask me if the food is kosher? So, excuse me, so the Jew tells him, I'll be very honest with you. I'll be very frank with you, forgive me. If it was the other way around, if you were hanging up there on the wall in the picture, and that man was standing right here behind the counter, I would have no question. I wouldn't doubt it. But now that it's the other way around, your great-grandfather there with the beard is up there hanging on the wall, and you're, here, you're standing here behind the counter, I have a question. Is the food kosher or not? So sometimes we're dealing with a situation that the child asks questions not because he's young, she's curious, they want to explore. But the questions are of a different caliber completely. The entire context in which you live in is completely alien to him. It's not about a detail or about a nuance. It's the very paradigms and foundations are completely different. We have seen this shift in Jewish history at different periods, but I want to emphasize one. There was a time when Jewish children, by nature, continued the legacy, continued the lifestyle, continued the faith of their parents. But then a few hundred years ago, and we know the exact period, at the end of the 1700s, the early 1800s, with the French Revolution, with the Enlightenment, which took over Eastern Europe, Western Europe and then traveled to Eastern Europe. A new phenomenon occurred in the Jewish world. Hundreds of thousands and then millions of Jews were born and raised in a new generation, in a new educational system, in a new milieu, deeply influenced by movements which shook the world and shook the very foundations of Judaism and of Jewish existence. And a new generation slowly emerged, which represented not only a machar, it represented a machar l'achersman, where suddenly what was meaningful to the father and the grandfather was meaningless to the child. What was meaningful to the child was meaningless to the father the very foundations of their life, the very foundations of their perspectives, completely alien one from another. There is that old Yiddish song, you know that song, 
which describes the cheder, the old school in which Jewish kids would grow up. Afin on the hot stove burns a flame. And the Rebbe is sitting with the young children and teaching them the olive base, the Hebrew alphabet. And he turns to the children and he says, Say, Kindelach, come it's Aleph. Say it again and yet again, come it's Aleph. And the melody continues. This song was composed to describe the Machar Shoachshav, the child who grows up within the context of his Tata, of his Zayda, of his Baba, of his Alta Baba. It's a tomorrow, but it's a tomorrow that seeks to continue the today. But then there's a child who grows up in a different home, in a different world. His questions are very different questions. Comes Rashi back to Rashi and tells us, when the Torah says, Ki Yisholcha Bincha Machar when your child will ask you tomorrow, Mazois. There are two types of children who will ask this question. Yesh machar achshav. There's a child who will ask these questions, but he is emotionally, existentially, intellectually, historically connected, intertwined with the past. But there's also another child, Yesh machar achazman. And for this, Rashi brings a proof. And his proof is from the story of the children of God in Reuven in Joshua chapter 22. And the reason he brings this proof is because this story really captures the idea Rashi is trying to tell us about Mokhar Achazman. It's not just tomorrow. It's not even just tomorrow as in time, a distant tomorrow. It's a distant tomorrow in the sense of a new era. An era in which the old paradigm has been replaced with new paradigms. What is the story Rashi is referring to? It's a fascinating story in the book of Joshua. The tribe of God and Reuven and half of Manasseh was given permission by Moses to settle at the eastern side of the Jordanian River and not cross over the Jordan to settle in the western side of the Jordan. But Moses made a stipulation. You can do it only if you agree to fight with your brothers on the front lines when they have to conquer the land. In Joshua, they fulfill the agreement. The children of God... The children of the tribe of Reuven, half of Manasseh, fight with their brothers to settle the new land on the west. The wars are over. And Joshua says, you fulfilled your condition. Now go back to your families, go back to your homes, go back to your farms. On the eastern side of the Jordan, and they bid farewell to Joshua, the leader, and they go back. On their way back at the Jordan River, 
the members of the tribe of God, Reuven and half of Manasseh, build a magnificent Mizbeach, a magnificent altar. And when the other Jews, ten tribes, back on the west, hear about this, they are horrified. Why? They see it as a statement that they are separate. There was a Mishkan, there was a tabernacle in Shiloh that was erected. The primary sanctuary, an abode for the Divine Presence, where Jews would come, where offerings were brought, where prayers were said. This was the primary Mishkan, the tabernacle, which would later ultimately be relocated to Jerusalem, the mountaintop of the base Hamikdash. But now it's in Shiloh. Before it was wandering in the desert for 40 years. Now it's in Shiloh. And yet these two and a half tribes built their own altar. They have their own new religious center, their own place of sacrifices. The other Jews felt this was a declaration of painful autonomy. We're not part of your people. We are our own people and we're not going to come to your tabernacle to offer the sacrifices. We're going to offer the sacrifices here which was forbidden in Jewish law. And the Jews fear that there is a need to go and fight them. And they galvanize an army, but before that they send, before any war, they send a representative, a very prominent person, Pinchas. You remember Pinchas? Pinchas is the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron, the high priest. They send Pinchas to ask them, what is the meaning? Why, why would you do this? Haven't you learned of the previous events of Jewish history? What a disaster this can create for you and for all of us. We're part of one people. Their answer is very moving. And it's this answer Rashi is referring to in his commentary here in Bo. Take a look, source number four. We have their answer. The children of Reuven and God and half of Manasseh speak to Israel and they say, God, the Lord, God, God, the Lord, God, He knows and Israel should know. Let him testify that we have not built this altar to betray God, to use it as a place of sacrifices in lieu of the temple, in lieu of the tabernacle. That is not the reason. The only reason we built this altar is because of concern of a future event. Tomorrow, your children might tell our children, What do you have with God, the God of Israel? And your children might tell our children there is a border that God created between you and us. It's the Jordanian River. You don't have a part in God. And your children will wipe out our children, not allow them to fear God. Vanoimer, the second part, second section in source four. Bring it up. Vanoimer, we said, Nasana Lono lived this some is Bayah. Loyloyla Loyla Zavah Ki Aidu Bainu Bainachim Bedir Sainu Akarenu Lava de Savoy de Sashem Lufanov. 
We said, let us build an altar as a monument, not for sacrifices, not to substitute the tabernacle in Shiloh, but to simply serve as a testimony between our children and your children for future generations. So that your children will not tell our children tomorrow. You don't have a part in God. This is the purpose of this altar. As the verses go on to explain. So you see why Rashi brings this verse. This is not just a tomorrow which represents a distant future as far as time is concerned. It represents a new era. Imagine. How can anybody approach the members of the tribe of God in Reuven and half of Manasseh and say, you don't have a part in the God of Israel. You're not part of the Jewish faith. You're not part of the covenant we have with the Almighty. What do you mean? We have just left our homes and our families back in the East. And we have joined you on the front lines to fight your wars. We have sacrificed our very selves in order so that you should be able to inherit your land. How would anybody even entertain the idea that they are not an equal part of the covenant of Judaism? Who would have the chutzpah, the audacity, to reject them from the covenant of Israel? Who would even think so? That's today. But machar, tomorrow, we will not be here anymore. We will not be here. The witnesses will not be present any longer. Tomorrow it will be your children and our children. Or your great-grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. And your children living in the West in the Promised Land might turn to our children and say, What do you have with the God of Israel? You're strangers. You're alien. You're not part of it. Thus we need the altar, we need an eternal monument right here at the Jordanian River built by us to represent the fact that we too are part of the reality of Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, Torah Yisrael, the Torah of Israel, and Elokei Yisrael, the God of Israel. So this is a type of machar, which is not just tomorrow, in a few years, your child wants to understand. It represents a machar of a new era where things that were obvious in the past are not obvious any longer. Where people who sacrificed their lives for you can now be seen as strangers, as outsiders. It's a new era. What was obvious then is not obvious any longer. What was simple to that generation is not any longer simple for this generation. You can't take anything for granted. This is the machar that Rashi is referring to us in this portion as well. Your child may ask you tomorrow a question. It's not only a child who is steeped, who is entrenched in the reality of today, merely continuing it into a new generation. It's a child for whom the whole today is completely alien. His questions are different questions. His convictions are different convictions. His very context, his modalities of thought and experience are completely different comes Rashi and says the Torah is referring also to this child and primarily to this child when the child who is still connected to today asks questions obviously you should answer obviously you should respond obviously you should embrace him and explain it to him 
But the Torah is trying to tell us something much deeper. And something much more revolutionary and something much more difficult. And something less obvious. When you encounter a child who speaks the language of Machar Achazman, he speaks a different language. His terms are different. His paradigms are different. His perspectives are completely different. You find no common denominator between you and this child. And he asks questions. And you may feel that the questions are completely irrelevant and irreverent to the world you come from. Don't run away. Don't be intimidated. Don't let him hang. Don't leave him hanging. Don't escape. Don't flee. Don't chastise him. Don't say, I have nothing to talk to you about. Talk to him. You might ask, why should I talk to him? How can I talk to him? When our very fundamental ideas are so different. How can I talk to him? Why should I talk to him? For this, there are two answers. Answer number one. And I'm going to ask you to bring up again source number one in your curriculum. Bring up source number one. Take a look at the verse again. What should you tell him? God took us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Came the Lubavitcher Rebbe and said, Let us read this verse a little deeper. When your child tomorrow asks you this question, you will tell him with a strong hand, God took us out of Egypt. The Torah is not only telling us what you should answer him, the Torah is also explaining to us why you have to answer this to him. Why he's even asking these types of questions. Because God took us out of Egypt with a strong hand, representing the fact that God took us out of Egypt through force, through coercion. If God would have not needed to take you out of your own Egypt with force, then you would have not, perhaps not had a child who asks these types of questions. In other words, the fact that there is a child, there is a student, who is so alienated, who is so far, who is so remote from your very foundations, may actually be somewhat your fault. Because even with you, Yiddishkeit may be forced. If your Judaism, if your experience of the exodus of Egypt to serve God would have been truly tranquil, truly serene, if it would have permeated and penetrated you in a very wholesome and harmonious and real way, your child would have felt that and would have gravitated to it. But since by you it's Bechayzik Yod... God had to force you to come out of Egypt. So even though you are a committed Jew, and even though you may be an observant Jew, and even though you are a Jew who left Egypt, but since, by you it was since you also had to be schlepped out, since you are also repressing a certain part of you which is alien, since you had to be coerced with a gaval to be taken out, then your child may be responding to that deeper part of you which never wanted to leave Egypt and he or she refuses to leave Egypt. It reminds me of a story somebody once shared with me 
that a Jew came to Reb Moshe Feinstein. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was one of the greatest halachic authorities of the last generation. He passed away in 1986. And he lived on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, on East Broadway. He built his famous yeshiva there, Teferis Yerushalayim. Now the Lower East Side of Manhattan was a place that was populated with thousands and thousands of Jews. It was actually their first address when they came to the United States, especially in the mid-20th century, in the 1920s, in the beginning of the 20th century, and then mid-20th century, it was filled with Jews, with synagogues and rebbes and teachers and classes and communities, Malava Malkas and Titian, Shabbos. And, uh, and somebody asked him, said, but all these Jews were very committed Jews, and yet most of their children left Judaism. Why? And Reb Moshe responded and he said, it's true that the parents were very committed Jews, but the common terminology that was used by them when they were raising their children in their homes, they would say, Oi! Oi, it's difficult to be Jewish. It was a famous expression. And he says, children don't want shver. They don't want a hard life. They want a good life. They want a happy life. They want an inspired life. They want an interesting life. They want a fun life, an exciting life. Who wants a shver eleven? Who wants a caved-in, hunchback, psychologically crushed and repressed life? You were very committed Jews, but it was b'choyzik it was with a strong hand. God had to take you out with a strong hand. So back to the talk, the Rebbe said, it may be your fault that your child is so alien. So don't run away. But there's something else. Even if you are completely innocent, even if the fact that your child speaks such a different language is really not your fault, you are truly innocent. Nonetheless, the Torah says, he is your child. Bincha. She is your child. Don't run away. Don't be intimidated. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't recoil into your own orbit, into your own comfort zone, into your own synagogue, into your own community. Reach out to this child. Speak to him. Explain to him. Enlighten him. Enlighten her. How relevant, the Rebbe said, this is to our era. And if this was true in 1970, how much more so today, in 2010. Today we live in a generation, in an era, where so many Jews are completely alienated from Judaism. It's not just there are questions, there are disagreements... There are different ways of approaching the same truth, the same reality. It's a machar, but it's a machar show, achshav, it's a tomorrow, which is a continuation of the today. There are Jews who live in a machar show, in a tomorrow which is completely distant, completely alien. The very foundations of the Jewish approach to life, to love, to marriage, to children, to faith, to every single aspect of life is completely alien to them. Comes the Torah and says, remember that each one of these Jews are bincha. They are your children. 
the connection that you have with them is very deep is deeply profound don't run engage him love him listen to him talk to him build a bridge reach out embrace let the affection between you two flow. Remember, it's Binchet, your child. Even if it's a Mochala never give up, never flee, never become insecure, never become pompous, bombastic, or arrogant. Reach out to this child. Find the courage within yourself, find the depth within yourself to cross over what you might think are endless borders and what might seem as an unbridgeable gulf, cross it over into Bincha, into the Machalach Hazman and expose him or her to the truth, to the depth, to the richness of setting yourself free every single day from the physical, psychological, spiritual and emotional Egypt. Have a wonderful evening. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.